How many of you ever read the book, um, A Tale of Two Cities? Anybody? Have you, have you heard of it? Are you Googling it right now? Does anybody, can anybody, I'm putting y'all on pressure. It seems like we're in youth group right now. Um, can anybody quote the first line of, the, of A Tale of Two Cities? Close. No, that was right. I'm just kidding. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So here's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. This will get us through the month of June. Today I'm just going to kind of introduce you to the book of Romans, and we're going to take those first seven verses. Interesting fact, um, I, it's crazy because I do like to write. I love to blog. I love to use words, and I was horrible at it in, in grammar in school. So, like, my teacher actually told me one time, you could, she wrote this on one of my papers after she had taken a red pen and circled every comma that I had put in the wrong place and also circled the places that they should have gone with arrows. And she wrote this, Paul, you could make, you could be an award-winning author if you can get a magic pen that places commas where they should be and erases them where they shouldn't be. I was not, I'm not good at it at all. But I love words, and I'm really bad about run-on sentences. And if you're just, you know, if you just like Bible trivia, Romans 1, verses 1 through 6 is one sentence in the Greek. Like Paul said, hey, I'm going to start talking and not stop for a while, right? Like he wrote, that's all one. And in the NIV, I think verses 1 through 7 make up three sentences, but it's just one long sentence in the Greek. And then next week, we're going to talk about the best of times, which is the good part of Romans chapter 1. And then on June 25th, um, call all your friends, all your neighbors, all the people that like to fight, tell them to come. We're going to talk about it was the worst of times. Today, I'm going to set it up. In 1992, um, during the presidential campaign, I don't know if you were alive for that or not, but there was a man named James Carville, and he was the lead strategist for Bill Clinton's campaign. And th as the story goes, because um, there was a phrase, are y'all good? There's a phrase that came out from that election. Um, if I start it, you might be able to finish it if you're old enough. I'm not trying to test your age. You, are you feeling it? Yeah. Well, that wasn't it. No, no. It's the economy. They, they just said the S word out loud in church, right? Um, when we were raising our kids, um, Will came home one time and he was trying to tell us something that happened at school and we were trying to get him to tell, like, what did they say? And he said, I can't say it. They said the S word. And we were, we were pay, you know, paying for them to go to Christian school and we were like, we're, we're going to get our money back. What is happening at the school? And we are like, what do you say to your kids? And I don't know what you said, but I said, what, what S word? Like, is he going to say it? He can't say it, so he said, you know, stupid with a D. Stupid was the S word to him. And then, then we were like, thank you, Jesus, right? <laughs> Never say the S word. Um, but the reason why that slogan took off is because as the lead strategist, he got tired of people on their campaign. Follow me. These are people who volunteered to work hard to make sure Bill Clinton became the president. This is not a political statement. I don't care who you voted for. But he got tired as the lead strategist of people on his own team 
walking into his office and saying this. What's the election about again? And so he made a sign that had three words. The economy, stupid. And he put it on his door so that the people on his team who couldn't remember what it was all about wouldn't have to keep asking him. They could just read the sign. Paul, in Romans, if we brought his point into that kind of language, Paul would say that Romans is about the gospel, stupid. It's the gospel, stupid. That's what he's going to talk about all the way through the book. It's a, it's a challenging book. I've never preached or taught through it ever before. And God put this on my heart about a year ago. I just felt like he said, man, I think we, that's something like, I mean, I, maybe we need to teach through Romans. And I would just, we argued for about six months. Clearly he won. And then I was reading the book, Jesus Revolution. If you were here, was it last Sunday night we watched the movie? Man, it was so good. Could watch it a hundred more times. I'd cry every time. Yeah. The pastor that's in that, in that movie he said this, Chuck Smith, he was at a church, and it was kind of dying. This is before he went to the church where Jesus Revolution kind of blew up. And he had heard somewhere that if you teach through the book of Romans, it'll grow your church. And so he did. And he said he found that it was true. It transformed his church because it transformed him. Because you can't read it and not see grace and kindness and truth, and it's just laid out. It's a beautiful, systematic theology. That's a big phrase. It just means that there's a, a way that we learn how to see God. And it's all about the gospel. Paul wrote this book in AD 57. Maybe you've heard of an um, emperor named Nero. Have you heard of him? He was a bad, bad, bad guy, but he wasn't a bad guy when this was written, okay? So Nero, he came into power in AD 54, and he was in power until AD 68 when he took his own life. And it wasn't until the last couple of years of his reign that he, that he started doing the bad stuff. Like if he's most known for, um, uh, we're trying to scan, are we good? Kids are good in here? I mean, they've already heard the word stupid, so we're good. He would take... Christians and he would wrap them up in the carcasses of animals so that wild dogs would come and get a hold of the scent of the animal carcass and then eat the people alive. He would take their heads and he would use them as basically as tiki torches to light his parties on his patio. I don't think that would smell good. You got to be all kinds of jacked up to do that. But he did that. But that was at the end. And it was because when Rome burned, he, most people think he probably started it, but he blamed the Christians for it. And so Christians were hated in Rome. My point is, Paul didn't write this with all that happening. When Paul wrote this, Nero was a pretty decent emperor. But don't you know that some of the words we're going to read were ringing in the ears of the believers when Nero took a turn for the worse? This book was not written to make Rome a Christian nation. And I think this is a really good word for our country right now. 
This book was not written to make Rome a Christian nation. This book was written to make Rome a nation full of Christians. And boy, what our country needs right now is our country needs to be full of Christians. We may never go back to a Christian nation, but righteousness exalts a nation. It starts down here. A people of righteousness just begin to grow, and as those people grow, it lifts the nation. Does it matter what the leaders do? Of course it does. We have elections all the time. But God is more interested in his people getting his heart. That's what this book is about. It's about the gospel. So let's talk about the gospel a little bit. Um, well, first, okay, let's read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Hey, go ahead and stand up. It'll let you kind of stretch a little bit. We'll honor the word of God. I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, and through, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him... We received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who were loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we just invite you into this time. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly. I pray the things that I botch up, man, just remove it from what we hear and let your word shine through. We want to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about the gospel. Um, Y'all cool if we just do a lot of teaching? The gospel was not simple. It was just good news of victory. The gospel was not a Christian term. It was just part of the language. So when, when, a, when an army would go out and win, when they sent a messenger back to proclaim victory, that messenger brought the gospel. With me? Not specifically a Christian term. I'm going to read to you some of the things that I found as I was studying. Um, I just thought this was so interesting. It's a, it's a term for news of victory. The messenger would appear, raise his right hand in greeting, and call out with a loud voice. The word for gospel. So <laughs> there's so much in here, right? Like, why do we whisper the good news? Shout it with a loud voice. We win. We talk about this all the time. I mean, sports are such a great illustration of this. There's, there's no fan base that when their team wins a championship goes, yeah. Right? They go crazy. They've had help, probably some of them, but they go crazy. They're loud. And, and this, I thought this was so cool. By his appearance, it is known already that he brings good news. His face shines. This is not about Christians. <laughs> Clearly. Church people may possibly be the grumpiest people on the planet. If you work in the food and service industry, you don't want to work on Sunday. 
We are cheap. We are grumpy. We are a poor representation of our victory. This is about the messengers from war. Let me read this to you again. By their appearance only, without even saying a word, the people could tell that they were bringing news of victory. When you talk to people, can they tell that you bring news of victory? I mean, forget the lost. I feel like I'm starting to meddle. Sorry. When you're just talking to fellow believers, can they tell by your face that you bring news of victory? Are you just talking about all the bad stuff? What you saw on social media? Your gout. Which I don't have, but I've heard is really painful. I just said it. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, did he mean grout? No, that's the thing in your bathroom, which also, if you've never done it, is painful. His face shines. It says that the, the term gospel is closely linked with the thought of victory in battle. In other words, there was never really anything bad associated with the news that was called the gospel. I don't think y'all are really getting this, but that's really good. That should be convicting enough right there. Good fortune is contained in the words. Again, this is not about Jesus. This is just about how the word gospel was used in the culture when Paul wrote the book. The message was rewarded. Listen to this. Because of the importance of the message, the messenger would exert himself to be first. If another arrives before him, his reward is less. A slow messenger can be punished for his, I don't know what that word is, but let's just say his slowness. Because he deprives the recipients of their good fortune. I'm not sure you're getting this. Messengers would race each other to be the first to tell the good news. Because if they were the first to tell the good news, they got a bigger reward. And the reason why the slow people got punished was because the news was too good to the people who would hear it for you to take your time telling them. This is the part where as a pastor, I'm supposed to say, when's the last time you shared your faith in Jesus with anybody? But I'd have to ask myself too. Right? We were just on the way to church today. We, did not, we, we didn't watch it on the way to church. We were talking about it. We just watched this like three-part documentary on Netflix about the earthquake in Nepal and Mount Everest in 2015. It is, um, wow. It's captivating. Um, it's a lot. I'm not trying to give anything away, but at the end, it's like real footage. And at the end, they found one person, like an entire hotel had collapsed on them. I went, uh, Richard and I, we went to Kathmandu. That was the city that we went to when we went on a mission trip to Nepal. And this whole city was leveled in 2015 because of this earthquake. And one of the hotels had come down, collapsed, and they, they like four or five days into the search, 
They had already, everybody had given up hope. They were like, yeah, after so many days without food and water, you're not going to survive. And I think it was on day five, they heard someone make a noise. And they found a 15-year-old boy. And so when you're watching the footage, so I should have brought that footage. That would have been awesome. Copyright probably, but whatever. Like, they, they pull him out, and there are just people, masses of people lined up everywhere. And then, like, on whatever buildings are still standing, there are people on top of those buildings, and they're all taking video of it. And you just see this massive humanity, and one person gets pulled out. And what do you think the crowd did when he came out? They were like, are we singing another worship song? Seriously? We're doing another one? Are you kidding me right now? I got, I got plans. Their whole world had stopped, y'all, to find whoever they could find. And they were finding dead body after dead body after dead body until that body came out and the place went wild. And I said to Wendy, when I saw that, I thought of Romans. I thought of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then God just convicted me. Because I wanted to come here this morning and say, why don't you get that excited about people coming to Jesus? And then Jesus said, because you're the pastor, and I'm not sure you do. Oh, God, give me a heart like yours for the lost. That we would drop everything. I mean, don't we do this like in America? If you're in business, you're supposed to do it in business. But like we are supposed to count the cost as believers. But sometimes we count the cost in such a way we're supposed to count it and say, wait, Jesus, you're worth more than all that. But sometimes we count it like, I don't know, if, if we can't get a certain number of people to come to that, is it worth doing that? Is it worth showing Jesus' revolution, if we can't get more than whatever number we put in there. He left the 99 for the one. Jesus said the one mattered. We don't even have time to go into how that one was a lost sheep, not the lost world. He went after you and me as believers when we wandered away. He didn't go, well, you know, they're, they're already saved. We'll just let them go off on their own. He's like, no, no, they're supposed to be with me. He went after the one. The one was worth it to Jesus. And I thought, but, I mean, if I'd been in Nepal and Kathmandu, I would have gone crazy too. But, like, that's somebody coming back to physical life. But eternal life? Why doesn't it do the same for me as it did for those people over that guy? And what Paul's going to do in this book is he's going to equally convict all of us. I've been praying for a month that you wouldn't get so offended that you would, that you would leave. That you would not be so offended that you leave. I haven't prayed that you wouldn't be offended. Because we're all going to be offended in this book. Every last one of us. Because Paul's going to bring all of us to the foot of the cross. He's not going to say this is for your neighbor. He's going to say it's for you. And you're going to say, but I've been serving Jesus for 50 years. And you still need the gospel. We cannot afford to keep the good news from the people that need to hear it. 
The gospel was not a new plan of salvation. It is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation that was begun in Israel, completed in Jesus, and is now made known by the church. Okay. Your companion God. Things, I put something in here. I, um, I won't read it to you. I'll just highlight it. But I, I, I gave you three things to remember as we go through the book of Romans. Number one, it's about a person, not a preference. I've pastored long enough to know this. Some of you in the room, you love, like, you love teaching, you love learning, you love doctrine, you love, that's a good thing. You're the ones that don't always know what to do with me because you're like, I'm pretty sure Paul likes that stuff, but he's just so stinking practical. I was the guy in, uh, I had my master's of divinity. I'll let that sink in. Some of y'all are like, well, if he can get a master's, anybody can get a master's. It's true. (laughs) Pay enough money, you can get one too. I was the guy, because I went to get my master's when I was a full-time youth pastor. And when I went, I was in line, and they asked me, like, so what do you want to do, be a pastor? And I was like, well, I, I am a pastor. I'm a, I'm a youth pastor. And her comment to me was, why are you getting a master's of divinity? Because teenagers need to know doctrine, too? <laughs> what kind of question is that? But I would sit in the classes where, like, really, really smart people talked about terms with a lot of syllables and they would talk about them forever. Like, I'm like falling asleep. And I'd be the guy that would just raise my hand and they'd say, yes, Paul? And I'd say, like, what, why, does this, why, why does this matter? I'm, I'm sure it does matter because I'm paying you a lot of money to learn the word. But, like, why does it matter? So what? What now? But I also can't say, well, it's all about practical stuff and, and doctrine doesn't matter. And what I love about this book is that Paul doesn't give us that choice. There's 16 chapters. He's going to take the first 11 chapters and he's going to talk about doctrine. It's deep, y'all. We're going to be like digging some stuff, right, out and we're going to learn a lot of stuff about God. But then we get to verse chapter 12 and the very first word is therefore. And the whole point is, we, for 11, ver- 11 chapters, we've been talking about doctrine and theology and teaching and sound doctrine and laying a foundation. And in chapter 12, he says, now, therefore, because of all that, let's talk about how you're supposed to live. Remember when I told you that you were going to get offended? I don't think you'll be offended in the first 11 chapters. You might have questions. I do too. But <laughs> 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, those last five chapters, <laughs> you pray for me, I'll pray for you. Right? She doesn't know it yet, but Bridget's going to preach all of them. It's going to be great. Because it's harsh. Because he's the guy in seminary saying to the people he just wrote a letter to, look, I told you all that, and here's how it should change your life. When you're going through this companion guy, when you're reading the chapters when you get around tables, hopefully, and discuss this with people, I just want you to ask three questions every single time. What's God saying to me? What am I doing about it? And how am I changing because of it? 
That's just John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now that you have information, if you do them as application and you'll be blessed, that's transformation. God doesn't want you to go through this book and get more information. He wants to change us. He wants us to be transformed. And it's not about a preference. It's about a person. It's always about Jesus. Theology and practice. Um, number two, learn to love questions. I, I just think this is interesting. I'm a question asker. There are 80 questions in the book of Romans. So Paul's teaching the Romans, but he's teaching them by asking them questions. Have you all had teachers like that? Like they answer your question with a question? That's Paul. So I just, I was asking God, like, what, what do I, we'll be in this the rest of our lives if we have to answer every question. And so I felt like God said, it's not your job to answer every question. Just address them. So we're going to address some questions, but we don't have to answer every one of them. And then the one I want to really spend time on today is number three. It says a river runs through it. I had asked God, um, just give me a metaphor. Give me something that can help me understand because I don't want to throw all the stuff at you, but, like, there's, there's, like, the doctrine of there's election in this book. There's predestination in this book. There's we're being transformed into the image of God. There's that coffee mug verse, like, I know all things are working together for the good, and we usually say for my good, and we forget the rest of the verse. It's in this book. About how God loves the Jews. What's going to happen with Israel? What, what if you struggle with homosexuality? That's in here. That's June 25th, by the way. You should come to that one. It would be a lot of fun for, for you. It's all in here. It's like, God, what, what? How do I grapple with all of this? And he said, there's two rivers. Hang with me. There's two rivers in the book of Romans. And everything we read, every, everything we're going to struggle with, it all points back to two rivers. One, riv one river leads to salvation, and one river leads to destruction. And Paul's going to say at some point in this, he's going to say, but Jesus came while we were ungodly, and he threw us a lifeline. Jesus rescued us out of the river that was leading to destruction, and he put us into the river that leads to salvation. And every time we read stuff that makes us question things, like, well, well can, if you're saved, can you? Or if you're in, the, can you get out of that river? Are you stuck in that river? It's all about the rivers. What river are we in? And what river are we busy in? Are we just happy to be floating down the river to salvation? Have we forgotten about the people that are in the other river? And then this week, as I was feeling so good about that, I was like, man, they're going to think I'm super smart. God just really began to highlight the word current to me. I was like, but God, I've already printed the books. I've already said there's two rivers. And, and God just kept saying, like, maybe there's, maybe it's just one river, but there's different currents going different ways. And he said, y'all got, got to learn how to pay attention to the currents. And a lot of things that we're going to read, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the, in the chapter, at the end of chapter 1, that verse that we like to use to beat up people that have a sexuality that's different than ours, 
It also mentions something about kids being disobedient to their parents. It's possible in this book he's going to talk about gluttony and pride. We don't ever talk about those things. These are all currents that we need to pay attention to. And there's two currents that run through the book of Romans. There's the current, there's a gospel current, and there's an anti-gospel current. I'm going to tell you what they are. If you are taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down because I think this will help you navigate the book. What is a gospel current? A gospel current. The gospel is Jesus rescuing us on the cross. I'm just trying to boil this down and make it as simple as possible. What is the gospel? It is Jesus rescuing us on the cross. If we win, and we do win because of the cross, then we're racing to tell people the good news of the gospel. Jesus has rescued you on the cross. That's good news. That's the gospel current. So then what is the anti-gospel current? And I'm not trying to be cute nor clever. I'm going to explain what I mean. If the gospel is Jesus rescuing us on the cross, then the anti-gospel is us rescuing Jesus from the cross. Let me explain. When we fully understand the gospel, we fully understand that we needed to be rescued. When we let the the anti-gospel current begin to take us away from that message, listen to how this affects us. Pride says, I was already good enough. Jesus didn't have to die for me. I'm already saved, so it doesn't really matter that I still feel better than somebody else. The Bible has verses about nullifying the cross. That nullifies the cross. Because in essence, when I say, I'm good, God, I can save myself. Then what I'm saying is, Jesus, you didn't have to die on the cross. That was a waste. And so I'm going to rescue you from that. I'm going to take you off the cross, Jesus. Do you see that make sense? <laughs> I mean, as long as we're talking about it, I'll just go ahead and offend you today. Bitterness says, I was worthy of the forgiveness at the cross, but I'm not sure about you. Gossip says, I can't fully trust that Jesus can bring redemption to this issue. So I'm just going to tell some other people and bring them into it. I expected it to be quiet. I'm, comp- I'm completely okay with it. Because y'all want me to get to Romans, the end of Romans 1 on the 25th, and tell all the bad people how bad they are? And that is also an anti-gospel current. Because the gospel came from me. Which is why when we really get the gospel, we will witness with compassion, with tears in our eyes, at the reality of heaven and hell. And not witness 
to get them to come to my church so that my church can get bigger so that it will validate that I made the right choice when I chose a church. Aren't we jacked up? I mean, tell the person next to you, you have got some issues. We do, y'all. So the gospel current is Jesus rescuing us on the cross. And the anti-gospel current is us rescuing Jesus from the cross. Does that make sense? Because I don't want to just make a clever statement and it not make sense. All right, so to our seven verses, I just want to highlight the gospel in all of it. And then we'll call it a day. Because it's the gospel. Stupid. Also, side note, when you read Romans, you understand all the other things that Paul wrote. Like in Corinthians, he talks about the foolishness of the cross. And like being a fool, like stupid, right? Like Paul's like, I'm willing to be stupid for the gospel. Is the gospel stupid? Sorry, parents. <laughs> Never say that word ever again after today. So Romans 1, 1 through 7, I'm going to quickly show you where the gospel is because we already read it. It's full of the gospel. I'm not going to teach any of this. You just write it down. Paul was set apart for the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Do not have time to go into it, but set apart does not mean that he's a special man and nobody else can be like him. Set apart is actually the same word as holiness. He lived a life that was clearly different than the culture. Now, he's writing this from Corinth. He's never even been to Rome. He says in this book, like, I can't wait. I hope to come see you. He's never been there. But Corinth and Rome were very similar. Like, they were metropolitan cities, a lot of pagan worship, a lot of idolatry, a lot of sexual immorality. A lot of commentators have said, like, when we get through Romans chapter 1, and read ahead, right? Read ahead and start praying for me. But when he starts listing all the horrible things at the end of Romans 1, a lot of commentators believe that he was sitting at a desk looking out the window watching that stuff happen as he was writing it down. And he was seeing it played out. And in that environment, he said, I'm set apart for the gospel. The gospel is so important that I'm going to live a life that sets me apart for it. If I'm the runner, the messenger that's racing to get there first, I'm not going to eat a Twinkie. Because I want to be in shape. I want to be able to outrun the other people. Like, you can have a Twinkie. The point here is, what other junk food are we receiving spiritually that slows us down when we're supposed to speed up to proclaim? He said, I'm set, I'm set apart. I've made a decision. My life will not look like yours, not because I'm holier than you, but maybe because I'm more committed than you to the gospel. Which is why later in the letter when they start arguing over what meat they can eat, he's like, are you kidding me right now? Eat whatever you want. But stop making each other stumble because that's not the gospel. And can't you just hear the Romans going, are you serious, Paul? 
I am a Roman citizen. I'll do whatever I want. Hey, you can do whatever you want, and so can I, and I've chosen to set my, myself apart for the gospel. This is a powerful message of holiness to the American church. So Paul was set apart for the gospels. The scriptures and the prophets pointed to the gospel. Verse 2, the gospel that he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So he's just reminding them all the prophets that you read about, all the scriptures that you already know, they all point to the gospel. And in verse 3, regarding his son, who is that? <laughs> I love asking church people questions. They're like, I know it's Jesus, but it's a trick. <laughs> who is God's son? <laughs> hey, we get through Romans, you're going to have a lot more confidence answering that question. Jesus is the point of the gospel. Paul was set apart for the gospel. The scriptures point to the gospel. Jesus is the point of the gospel. And I love, I love verse 3. It says that he was, to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. He talks about his lineage physically, and then he talks about being raised from the dead. What does that mean? It means that history proves the gospel. Like, you can trace Jesus. Like, you can be here right now and not know God and not know Jesus and not love any of this. You're just here because somebody told you there might be food. And you can get on Google and you can type in, show me historical documents about Jesus. And guess what? They're there. He lived, y'all. And that's what Paul's saying. It's like, look, the, the scriptures pointed to him, but history proves him. You can trace his lineage. He was from David. There's no smoke and mirrors here, y'all. We're not trying to bait and switch you. I am 100% boldly telling you that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the point of the gospel, and history proves it. And when he talks about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves it. This is why Paul said later in one of his other letters that if you can get away from the, with the resurrection, take that away, that we have no faith. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the point of the gospel. History proves it. And then verse 5 says, Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his, for his name's sake. Are you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ? In verse 5 he says that now we must pass along the gospel. It's like you can't be content that you have it because now the point is that you've been called. You've received grace so that you will now, among the Gentiles, point to Jesus. We said at the beginning of this year, this is a year of proclamation. There will be souls saved during this series. There could also be seats emptied. I don't know. I don't want any of you to leave, but I also don't want you to sit here and take somebody else's spot. If you're not going to get busy about the gospel. If we're not going to get busy about the gospel. I think that's good. All right. Let's pray and then we'll go eat. Y'all did great. You good?
So let's see, let's recap. Um, next week, it's the best of times. And then the next week, it's the worst of times. And, and then the week after that, kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Listen, I know that while we talk, we're not always going to have like an altar call response. But there's no way to be in God's word this long without it stirring us. And so if he has stirred that in you and you just feel like, oh, my, man, it is about the gospel. You're like, stupid, it's about the gospel. Come on. Like, if he's convicting you of that, just repent. Just repent right now. God, all across this room as we're doing that, I just love how your word lays us open, cuts us to the core, reveals stuff to us about us. And I, I just invite you right now, Holy Spirit, begin to fan into flame. Man, there is such a passion in this room growing to see our city transformed with the gospel. And I pray that as we go through this book that it would just grow God into this raging fire of revival. Breathe, Holy Spirit, on your word in us. Fan it into flame, I pray. God, I pray that you'd give us a heart for evangelism, that you would put people on our hearts and our minds that we could pray for and speak with and love on. And give us a heart to take the gospel message like those runners that just take it out from this place. Run the race in such a way as to win, to be the first to share the good news that in Christ there is victory. In Jesus' name, amen.